Our Father, we choose to bow before you today as Master, Savior, King, as Lord of creation and Lord of our lives. Lord, we ask that the Word of God will be made clear and strong in our hearts, that you'll create in us the desire to respond to it in obedience as we discover all the way from the beginning to the end that the, the theme is to trust and obey, to hear and carry out the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that that will be our desire and that will be the commitment of our lives. Lord, I ask you to meet each need here this morning. And as the Word of God is being proclaimed in the service and in the various classes of the Sunday School this morning, we invoke your presence and your power and that lives will be changed. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Israel is in the process of actually becoming a nation, God's people. And they have been brought through the Red Sea, and now they are facing the wilderness. And one of the interesting things that we focused on last time was that they complained that Moses had brought them out in the wilderness so that they might starve to death. And of course, God said, all right, I'll send you quail uh, in the evening and manna in the morning. But you know, when you stop to analyze this thing, God knew he was going to have the children of Israel in the wilderness for two years, at least. I mean, he knew the total story, of course. But what plan did he have to feed these people in the wilderness? They certainly couldn't take enough food with them to last for two years in that climate and in that uh, day and age. So manna was in God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't like, oh no, they're complaining about starving. What will I do now? You know, God was intending to give them manna. They simply didn't have the patience to wait to find God's provision before they complained and before they griped to Moses. But one of the interesting things about this was, and I emphasized this last time, you notice the patience of God. God was very, very patient at this point. I mean, God is always patient, but I mean, it becomes much more clear, evident at this point. He simply says, this is what I'm going to give to them. And so he does. And we looked a little bit at the provision of manna last week. Manna, which comes from the Hebrew, meaning what? What is it? Right. What is this stuff? And well, you know, it's what it ended up being called. What is it? Did you have your what is it this morning? The last thing we talked about in class is the miraculous nature of this substance. Because, for one thing, this was all they were going to be eating for the bulk of 40 years. Now, most of us are aware of the fact that in the days, uh, early days of transoceanic shipping, when the wooden sail ships went on long voyages, the great scourge of the sea was scurvy. And of course, had they lived long enough and, and scurvy had not been a problem, they'd have run into other vitamin deficiencies which could have been also lethal. And that was, of course, living on nothing but hardtack and salted fish or beef or whatever it was they had with them and green water. Lack of fruits and vegetables. 
Well, you can imagine this would be true for them too if manna was just a kind of a grain and only a grain. And this was all they ate day in and day out, three meals a day, 30 months, I mean 30 days out of the month, all the months out of the year. They would have suffered from very, very serious vitamin and mineral deficiencies. But God's provision was manna. Manna was the perfect food. Manna had all the nutrients on it. If it had had one of those little scales on the side, it would have said, you know, 100% of A, B, C, D. Only 100% as God knew 100% to be, not as the federal government determines what 100% is. So these people, of course, were provided perfectly through the wilderness with this food. A miraculous food. The strange thing about it to me was the fact that they could bake it, they could boil it, they could grind it, and it was edible. But if you didn't pick it up in the morning, whatever was left evaporated in the sunlight. How can something that evaporates in the sunlight be ground and baked and boiled and still survive? Well, it was a miraculous food. Let's begin reading this morning with Exodus chapter 16, verse 22. Now it came about on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and to told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until the morning. So they put it aside until the morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. We find in this particular passage that God had already ordained that they have a day of rest, a Sabbath day. And God had already said, that on the sixth day they were to gather enough food for two days. So instead of two dry quarts, which is about what one omer was, they were to gather four dry quarts or two omers on Friday, let's call it Friday, the sixth day, and that would carry over onto the Sabbath or the seventh day. But they had not heard them very, heard Moses very well apparently. Because here we have some of the Israelite leaders, maybe a little more dense than others, I don't know. But they had discovered that the Israelite people on Friday, the sixth day, were gathering twice as much as they normally gathered. And they were looking at this and they were saying, oh, this is not, probably not a real good idea. And so they went running off to Moses to report the situation. And maybe they weren't really so much tattling. They're gathering twice as much as they're supposed to gather. You know, you said if they gather more, it was going to all turn wormy and be rotten the next day. But maybe to discover from Moses why this was so, why there was so much more manna available 
and why the people were gathering it. In spite of all the instructions, in spite of all the warnings given by God, some went out looking for manna on the Sabbath morning. God used this opportunity, this occasion, to verbally chastise the people through Moses, to teach them the importance of the keeping of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath basically means rest, to keep the rest that God had ordered. Now, in order to rejuvenate the body, the mind, and the spirit, and to have time to meditate on God and his word, God had commanded that the people remain in their tents and in the environment of their tents on the Sabbath day. Now, God was not saying to them, you got to sit, you know, in a lotus position in your tent and meditate all day long. He was simply saying, he wasn't telling them they couldn't fellowship with one another. He wasn't telling them they couldn't go out to the edge of the camp and do what they had to do, you know, on occasion. But he was simply telling them to refrain from your normal duties. Don't do what you do the other six days of the week. Don't tend your herds and, you know, don't erect tents and don't do the things that are part of the normal lifestyle. This is a day for physical, mental, and spiritual refreshment, rejuvenation. They had not had a Sabbath while they were living in Egypt. We have no idea whether they ever had a day off while they were slaves in Egypt. Certainly they had no day off that they wanted. They couldn't go to their Egyptian masters and say, hey, we'd like every seventh day off to worship our God. They may have had an Egyptian religious festival, as, as time off, we don't know. Chances are, being slaves, they had no holidays or days off. The concept of the Sabbath goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. And we see it in the creation week, where God on six days created the, the earth and life and all that is within the universe. And then the scripture says, on the seventh day he rested. And, and when we think about that, we have to realize, and I think we talked about that uh, several years ago when we studied that uh, particular passage, God doesn't need any rest. I mean, God is the Spirit. Uh, God is perfect. God is totally uh, strong. So it was a precedent. It was an example. It was God, in effect, by example, saying to mankind that there is a seven-day cycle built in and the seventh day should be a day of rest for you. But the command for a Sabbath has not appeared before. You go looking through Genesis and all the way through Exodus up to the 16th chapter and you will not find the word Sabbath anywhere in the Hebrew Scripture up to that point. They have not been commanded to take a day of rest. It shows up for the first time in the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. Here, God is driving home the importance of the Sabbath by withholding the manna on that seventh day. They couldn't go out and do their normal routine because there was no manna there to, to glean. It was like saying, you can't go out and harvest your field today because this is the Sabbath of the Lord, the day of rest. 
And certainly after one or two experiences, you know, the slower of the people who went out there a couple of times in a row and didn't find anything, got the point and realized that God was not going to provide this miraculous food on what he had proclaimed to be the Sabbath, the day of rest. And verse 30 of this uh, passage which we read verifies this because it simply said, so the people rested on the seventh day. They had no other option. God had taken everything else away. Verse 31, And the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that fed you in the wilderness when, you brought, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the sons of Israel ate the manna forty years, until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Then the parenthetical statement, Now an omer was a tenth of an ephah. An ephah was apparently about a bushel. So a tenth of a bushel would be about two dry quarts, more or less. Well, here we have a description of the character of the manna. What, what is this stuff like? We're told in this passage that its, its appearance was like coriander seed. So, of course, immediately we, we realize what it must have looked like, right? Because we're all so familiar with coriander seed. Coriander is a small herb, so tall, that grows fairly abundantly in the Middle East, still grows over there. It has uh, small little pinkish white flowers on it. And when it goes to seed, it, it forms a little uh, pod, and in this pod is a BB size pearl. It's not a pearl, it's the seed, but it looks sort of like a pearl. It's the color of a pearl and, and the size of a very, very small pearl. Now, does that mean, therefore, that the manna appeared as little BBs all over the ground? Or, or did it have kind of a hemispherical shape as it formed on the ground? Well, we can't really tell what the shape of it was from this, but we can garner from this that the color of it was pearly white because they immediately related it to coriander seed as they saw it out there on the ground. The flavor is another matter. The passage tells us here that it tasted like wafers with honey. Kind of a honey-flavored cookie, if you will. One of the things we need to note is that the word translated honey in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word devash. Now, devash does not necessarily mean honey like we think of it when we go to the store and buy a jar of honey. It can mean that. But more frequently, it refers to the boiled down syrup of grapes and dates. That was the only real sweetener they had in those days. They didn't have sugar like we have, of course. They simply boiled the grapes down, boiled the dates down and figs down and, and produced a, a syrup. And that was the sweetener that they used whenever they needed a sweetener for their food. And so are we talking about a flavor like bee honey or grape devosh or 
Fig Devosh, well, doesn't say that specific. But obviously it was what they were accustomed to as being a sweet flavor. So to me what it kind of sounds like it boils down to is maybe a gourmet cookie <laughs> type substance. I think we have to recognize though that it couldn't be sweet like our gourmet cookies are because how many of those could you eat per day and still want to eat some more tomorrow, you know? It had to be a substance that had a, a flavor that didn't wear out. Even though later on, of course, they do say, oh, we got this old manna to eat again, you know. And I said, I, you know, I think we could relate to that. I don't think we should come down too hard on Israel. Because maybe you are the kind that every morning has your Wheaties and, and you've been eating Wheaties ever since it was the breakfast of champions. But some people can't stand the same thing two days in a row or at least two weeks in a row. They've got to have something different. And probably most of us don't eat exactly the same meal for dinner either every day. So we have to have a little sympathy with these people to know that they ate this substance three times a day every day of their lives in the wilderness. So it had to have a flavor, a, a substance to it that didn't wear out real quickly. And obviously it's filling nature, the nature of uh, providing a sense of having eaten well and, and a strong well-being coming from it would be very helpful, obviously. Moses then related the command uh, that an omer full of manna be set aside and kept for posterity. The purpose, of course, was to remind the people of God's miraculous provision for 40 years in the wilderness. And if you don't believe it, here is the stuff right here. Look at it. <laughs> you can see it. Well, of course, it wouldn't quite be that way, but it was there if uh, anyone needed to, to see it. Now, this stuff was so perishable that if the sun shone on it and hadn't been garnered, it evaporated. So obviously for an omer full of it to be kept and not turn foul and wormy, it had to be miraculously preserved by God. So you see God's divine finger in all of these things. And your liberal theologians can come along and try to make all the explanations they want to about how this was somehow naturally done. Oh, they were in the desert, you know, in the desert is a very desiccating environment and so they put it in this dry jar and, you know, it's... it's it just goes on and on. This is God's miraculous provision. Now, there's a question that should arise as we look at this passage. Aaron, we're told, put the man in a jar and placed it before the testimony. What, what, what testimony? <laughs> what is the testimony that he placed it before? Well, the testimony was the law of the Lord. It was the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai, the Decalogue. So how could he do this? They haven't even gotten to Sinai yet. Well, the passage is, of course, prophetic. They preserve it now, and they probably preserved it in an earthen jar, and they preserved it until the Ark of the Covenant was made. And then it was transferred into the golden jar and put in the Ark of the Covenant and would be traveling with Israel for the rest of their 40 years and on into their time of occupation of the land of Canaan. So remember, Moses is writing the book of Exodus from the end of his life, looking back. 
And so he often describes things in a manner that, that the events kind of all run or telescoped together. And that, of course, is what he is doing here. It isn't at this moment put before the testimony because it doesn't exist yet. But it will be, well, I mean, it hasn't been given to Israel yet. But it will be uh, probably within, a, within about a year of this event, the ark will be a reality. Let's, if you will, for a moment, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Why? <laughs> well, the Ark, by the time the Hebrews book of Hebrews was written, the ark had been missing for at least half a millennium, maybe even longer. So God had ordered that it would be preserved for posterity, and that manna would be at least available for the priests to look at. I mean, the people couldn't just run up and say, hey, show me the bread in the ark, because the ark of the covenant was in the holy of holies, into which the high priest could only go once a year. So what you knew is you believed by faith in what was there. But it had been placed there in the sight of all and therefore was known to be a reality. The manna is later referred to by the psalmist as the bread of heaven. Psalm 78, verse 24, we read, And he rained down manna upon them to eat, and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of the mighty ones, or as it's translated in this particular version, angels. And he sent them food in abundance. Now, one of the things we have to note about Psalms is that uh, Psalms are, in, in, to a great extent, poetry. And because this is translated man did eat the bread of heaven, uh, of, of angels, doesn't necessarily mean that angels sit up there all the time eating manna. But the idea is it was a gift from God above brought down from the heavenly realms and given to mankind. And as such, it becomes a tremendous picture of what Christ would be and what his position was in the, in the plan of, of uh, salvation. And Jesus makes this clear himself in the sixth chapter of John when he uses this very historical event of the manna from heaven as a powerful teaching tool to try to get through to the minds of the people that he was talking to there by the Sea of Galilee of who he really was. And so he gives this analogy. He says in verse 30, they said, before, therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, 
as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. I mean, <laughs> our fathers got this, this heaven, heavenly bread that came down for them. And so what can you show? What an opening for what Jesus wanted to say. Therefore, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They therefore said to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The manna was a physical substance sent down miraculously from God to pro provide provision for Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. But Jesus becomes the eternal bread who doesn't just give life for the moment, but life for all eternity. This is something these people could get a handle on because they understood bread being the staff of life. In our society, we've heard the phrase, but we don't think about it too much because, I mean, there are probably people in this room who go through a whole day without eating any bread, per se. You know? We aren't as dependent upon bread as our, even our own ancestors were. What, you know, many of us uh, realize, I suppose, that, for example, Russia is one of the leading grain-producing nations in the world. And yet, Russia often has a dearth of grain. Now, part of that, of course, is because of weather. But part of that is because they consume a whole lot more of it than we do. A typical Russian eats an entire loaf of bread per person per day, you know. And, of course, they drink a lot of vodka, <laughs> which comes from grain, too. So a lot of grain gets consumed in, in that particular uh, way. But they better understand the phrase that bread is the staff of life than we do because, you know, we go home and we might have uh, beef and, and potatoes and corn for dinner and never even touch anything that seems to be directly grain, even though, of course, that's kind of how the beef got here. But they understood this back in Israel in those days. Because whenever they traveled, that's what they carried with them, their little pita bread, you know, loaves. And that was how they sustained themselves on any lengthy trip. So when Jesus said that as manna came down out of heaven as a miraculous gift from God, and it sustained Israel there in the wilderness, so I sustain you as the real and true bread out of heaven that gives you eternal life. You don't just survive 40 years, you survive for all eternity as a result of the bread that comes down out of heaven. 
Jesus said earlier in this same passage in the 27th verse, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Now, he's not telling them that they didn't have to work in order to survive, that they didn't need to, to work in order to eat, because Paul later on will say, let him who doesn't work not eat. But what he is saying is, don't focus on just getting the bread for tomorrow. Uh, that needs to be done, but the focus needs to be on eternity, upon our relationship with God, because that's the ultimate goal. This is not our home, the little chorus goes. We're just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Well, sometimes we sing that little ditty. Well, we used to anyway. But it doesn't really mean much as far as where our treasures really are. From the passage in the 16th chapter of Exodus, it's clear that Israel received this manna every day without fail, meaning, of course, on the sixth day they got enough for the seventh day, but they were provided with this manna for the entire 40 years of their wilderness experience. There never was a day when it was supposed to come that it didn't come. They were never in a place that God couldn't give it to them. It was always there. And it continued to be there until they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. And the Scripture tells us they partook of the fruit of the land for the first time. Let me read that uh, verse to you from Joshua 5.12. It says, And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. How could they do that? They were able to do that because they walked into a turnkey country. God led them into a country where the orchards were already mature and producing and the vineyards were mature and producing and the grain fields were there to be harvested and the wine presses were there and the, and the olive presses were there and everything was there. They just had to take it, drive out the people who were there and take it. And so the food was there and they no longer needed the manna. And so the miraculous provision of God stopped as far as the provision of the manna was concerned. They were to still experience the miraculous provision of God, though, according to God's plan, by allowing Him to enable them to conquer the land and to, to defeat a people who, was, who were far stronger than they. Israel was not a fighting nation. Israel was not made up of roving bandits like so many of the nomadic tribes were. But, but a people whose, whose knowledge of warfare was extremely limited. They're going to have some of it, even in this next passage. They get little experience along the way. But they are not a warlike people. And yet when they moved into Canaan, they ran across many warlike peoples. And God intended to give them the entire land. That would have been a miraculous provision for them. But of course, in their folly, they failed to believe and obey. And so pockets of the enemy remained as kind of a cancer in their midst from that time on. In the 17th chapter of Exodus, we come to another time of testing. I, I, I trust we're seeing here a pattern. A trial, a test, 
arrest. Attest, arrest. And, and that's kind of the way it was. God intended to test Israel, to strengthen them in their faith, and then give them a time of rest where they could enjoy what God is doing for them. And then another test that they might kind of, it's kind of like a stair-step approach to faith. You take a step, rest, take a step, rest, take a step, rest. Ever upward. Those of you who have ever done any serious mountain climbing know, you don't just keep plowing on to the summit, especially when you get up in the higher elevations. You stop and you breathe a while, you know. And you suck in the air and you try to get your body back into coordination. And then you launch out again further towards the summit. And then you stop. And, and the best mountain climbers uh, do that. They climb, they rest. They climb, they rest. They climb, they rest. If you just try to keep pressing on and you push yourself beyond a certain point, and then you just collapse and you can't go any further. And I've seen that happen on more than one occasion. Well, we haven't read this. Okay, 17, beginning at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the com command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, have we heard this before or what? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. I mean, it's getting serious now. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because he tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Do we, are we tempted every time things start to go poorly for a while to question whether God has abandoned us or not? I think sometimes we may be. And that's what Israel exemplifies here. We've already emphasized, I've attempted to emphasize, how, how much God had done, the miracles God had provided for Israel, and yet they again say, is he amongst us or is he not? They wanted to have some kind of clear divine manifestation of God seemingly on a regular basis. Not that manna wasn't. What we got here is deja vu, right? At Mara, which meant bitter, they had complained about thirst. We can't drink this water, it's too bitter. So God miraculously transforms the water and makes it palatable. And now they're griping at Moses again. There's no water here. You know, what's just strange, the word Rephidim means refreshment. I think probably the name was applied after <laughs> the miracle here, rather than before. I, I think Moses was beginning to feel a little incredible here. How can this be? 
after all God has done. And they're griping at me again because they're thirsty. And he, not, he acknowledges the seriousness of their complaint because he says to the Lord, they're about to stone me. They're getting to the point now where they might stone me. God, of course, isn't too shook. And God, in his great patience, says to Moses, Moses, assemble the elders before me. Now, some of these elders were probably the leading grumblers. He says to Moses, take them out to this rock. That's, they use the word Horeb here, probably meaning in the direction of Horeb, because Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, and they are not there yet. They got many days of March yet before they're going to reach Mount Sinai. The commentators, as they look at this, are basically not in any great agreement here, but uh, either there was a rock there called Horeb, similar to Mount Sinai, or that it was basically in the direction of Horeb. Whatever the case may be, God said to Moses, take these people out here to this rock that I appoint, I'm appointing to you because I'm going to show them a thing or two. Notice the personal promise of God to Moses. I will stand on the rock before you. I, the Lord God of the universe, will be on that rock where I tell you to take Israel. Now, obviously, God does not have a body, but the idea is that God's presence was manifested on that rock in a very, very real way. And Moses was to believe it. I don't think he saw any particular manifestation. The scripture says, does not say any such thing. But he was to believe in his mind and heart that God was there, focused there on that particular rock where he commanded Moses to take the elders. And there Moses was commanded to strike the rock with the staff of the Lord in the presence of all of these elders so that they could witness two things, the reality of God's presence with Moses. You know, for them, for, for Moses to have to even begin to think that these people might stone me Knowing that the presence of God was upon Moses was an incredible thing. Dare they lay their hands on God's chosen servant? David later would say, I won't even lay my hands on Saul, even though he's a wicked king, because God had anointed him. So they were to see the reality of God's presence with Moses, and then they were to witness the miracle of water flowing out of a solid, dry rock. Can you imagine that? Whack, split. And I don't think it was a little trickle, you know, drip, drip, drip. I think water gushed forth from this rock. Spring in the desert, literally, as water poured out of this rock. It wasn't because God led Moses to a place where there was a weakness in the rock and there was a natural spring under there and it just had to be uncovered, which is a naturalistic way of trying to explain God's miracles. God just ordered water to come forth from the rock, and it came forth. Moses named the site Masa, which means testing. And he named it Meribah, which means quarreling. <laughs> Do you remember back at old testing and quarreling? Because Israel had quarreled with Moses and tested God. The significance of this particular event is referred to several times in the Old Testament. I mean, this was not just an isolated incident that happened along the way, you know. On our way to uh, Sinai one day, this little event happened. No, no. 
This was a big deal. God made a big deal over what occurred here because it didn't just display a momentary aberration in Israel. It displayed a basic disbelief in God. So I'd like for us to turn to one of the Old Testament references back to this in Psalm 95. There are others in the Psalms, Deuteronomy and other places. We sing a chorus that covers the first two verses of this, but it, as far as I know, unless we haven't sung other parts of the chorus that I'm not familiar with, it doesn't go on to the rest of the psalm. Verse 6, Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. However, today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their hearts. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. I mean, that little section of the psalm starts out in such a joyful way and it ends up on a very somber note. If you compare verses 6 and 7 of this psalm with verses 8 through 11, you find a very stark contrast. God's true people bow before Him in homage and worship. And they follow Him without reservation just as sheep follow the shepherd. Can you imagine all the sheep getting together and going, you know, trying to tell the shepherd, we don't go this way, we go that way, right? Wherever the shepherd leads the sheep, the sheep go. They don't complain, they go wherever He leads them. But... Beginning in verse 8, you find those who follow God in name only. And this world is filled with such people. They harden their hearts. They test God. The scripture here says they err in their hearts. And why is all this? Because they do not know my ways, God says. They don't know me. They don't know who I am or what I'm about. And, and that this is serious business is emphasized by the ominous words at the end of verse 11. They shall not enter into my rest. I don't believe at all that this is simply an allusion to the fact that they would not go into the land of Canaan and experience the rest of finally getting through the wilderness and, and, and uh, you know, enjoying the land. I think it goes a lot further than that. It may mean that, but I think beyond that it means they will not enter into his eternal rest. Because they were people who said, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? And Lord, Lord, did we not do that? But he is saying, I don't know them. Because he says in this passage something that God rarely says, I loathed that generation. And we think of a God... We, we, you know, as a God who just kind of drips with love. And God is perfect love. But God knows how to hate, too. And He hates sin. 
And people who are absolutely dedicated to disobedience and sin inherit that hate. And they die in their sin. They do not enter into his eternal rest. And so it would be for this generation. Oh, there will be the exceptions. There is Moses, there is Aaron, there's Miriam, there's her, there's Jacob, I mean, uh, Joshua and Caleb, and, and certainly thousands of others who were true believers and who were obedient. But there were thousands who disobeyed and perished in the wilderness. Kind of a sad thing when you think about that, that God would take these people after they had refused to go in the land, said, okay, you're going to wander for 38 more years out here in this barrenness until all of you people who were over 20 years old and refused to go in drop dead in the wilderness. <laughs> That's quite a sentence. God could have just blasted them all right on the spot. But of course, those who were 20 and under needed the 38 years too to be formed up into the people who would obey God and follow Joshua into the land. So God brings hard things for the purpose of training his people and making us what, what he wants us to be, enabling us to enter the land. Well, Israel is going to face their first major test of warfare next week as we move on into the 8th verse of chapter 17. And, and as we study this passage, it is... I mean, it is such a sad thing because at the end of this passage, God makes a very solemn pronouncement that he will war against Amalek forever. And Israel is, is ordered to annihilate an entire nation, period, without exception. These factors, I think, help us to understand the seriousness of God's commands for righteousness because unrighteousness yields damnation and devastation and destruction. And that's what Amalek will face.